Okay. Let's let's give this a go. Recording Audacity. James, you lead the way. Okay, Dick. Um, welcome to the Lixnor. What is it? 1752 podcast research project. Yeah, historical research project. Historical yeah. theatre research project. Okay. Uh, I'm here, James Moran, with Shane Connolly. Hello. And Dick Walsh. How are you all doing? Why don't you say again briefly what the, research, what the show is, Dick, or the research project? Okay, yeah. These people mightn't have listened to the last one, you see. Okay, so we'll, we'll go for it again. It's, um, yeah. Well, basically, we are uh, theatre makers. We've worked together on many different projects. Um, and now we are trying to do a project set in the 18th century in North Kerry, uh, where I'm actually from. Um, originally, Lixna, but actually after this interview here and after meeting this man, Joe Harrington, we're going to set the project in Lyra Compon, which would have been like an outskirts of the of the estate of the Earl of Kerry. Uh, and um, to put it succinctly, basically we are going to deep dive and research everything we can about this period, roughly around 1752, um, when the project's going to be set in, but 18th century Ireland. Uh, we're going to find out the butter markets, the the economy, the influence of Cork City, the the uh, the growth of international globalism, um, you know, obviously the ending of the of uh, the Gaelic Ireland and the and the introduction of capitalism into the country, and um, we've gone through already a lot of data, and we're going to continue to go through a lot of data, uh, and eventually we're going to slide off, and we're going to make a play, make a story, uh, which we've just started to do. We're at that process of sliding away from history and making making a play, and these podcasts and these interviews are a fantastic way of getting as much historical information and as much knowledge as we can that'll help us understand the story of the people from that time so um <laughs> for this podcast we talked to joe harrington yeah who is from lyricum pan that's right that's right and he's probably the foremost expert in lyricum pan history yeah he's involved in a journal a history journal on the area mm-hmm. he's written a few books on the area he's currently writing a book about the road that goes where to castle island or somewhere yeah it goes from essentially would have been the road that linked listol to castle island to to cork which which is the epicenter of the butter markets of south okay. Munster. um but yeah it was it was built through lyra component and so what how did you hear about joe uh, he actually came to um a showing myself and shane did along with a few others in listol just before christmas we were talking about the project that we were doing and uh he put his hand up, had some interesting questions, but he also had this interesting anecdote about a guy called Darby Carty, who was a valet for the Earl of Kerry. And at around this time, when the Earl died in 1748, um, he was given a thousand acres of land in Lyra Compon. And, uh, and roughly around the time when the, when the road, uh, it's actually just before when the road was built through it. So in a way, that's all we know about this guy, Darby Carty, is that he was a valet, and then he became like a guy who owned a thousand acres. Well, just to be clear, he didn't own it. Oh, he, he was given a tenancy. Yes, yes. He was given a tenancy. Just yeah, to be um, it's good to be accurate. accurate. Okay. Good to be accurate. Yeah. So it's yeah. a, a tenancy for three lives. So, um, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, nobody. But that in itself, it, it's almost like owning it for him. At the time, yeah. The only people who, at that time, the only people who owned land were, of course, large, big yeah. earls and uh, people who had like. Yep. tens of thousands of acres so yeah he had, he had a very large tenancy and yeah we don't know much more about him as a character but we can start to speculate his story uh his story must have been fascinating and also he was right there at the point where uh in the 18th century a lot of land started to be reclaimed using new advancements in technology and also the development of these global markets started to have their effect across rural, rural Ireland and across the world, really, um, in terms of, like, reclaiming land and commonage uh, was being reclaimed. And So Joe was sort of immediately interested in the project. Yeah, I was, I, and I was interested in him because he, he had the same angle. He wasn't, he didn't, have, he didn't seem to have this, like, prejudicial obsession with, like, Catholicism or anti-Catholicism or the English versus the Irish or... He, he 
just had this like pragmatic interest in the history of the area, which, uh, which resonated with me, you know, um, it was non-judgmental. I felt very non-judgmental, you know. Yeah. So we met, I met him twice. You met him once for this project. Yeah. He gave us a tour of Lyricrum Pan. And mm-hmm. then later on, I met him to record the interview. Yeah. Yeah. And there were sort of different experiences because he was really bringing us around, showing us the whole area. Mm-hmm. And uh, even he said to me when he was, uh, maybe before the interview, he said like, he talks best when he's, like in the area and when he can see it. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Mm. Even during the uh, interview, he starts talking about looking out the window at things, doesn't he? At the exactly, yeah. And stuff. yeah. Like one of the things that uh, I liked when we were, he was showing us was the um, these two fields mm-hmm. that dated from, I think, around this time. Yeah. From the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was pointing at the fields and then he was also at three maps sort of demonstrating how the fields had changed or not changed in um, since they were made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was a bit lost on me, but <laughs> earlier when we were recording this, you and Shane were talking about what that meant, like what you thought that meant. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thought I thought it was fascinating because, um, you know, especially growing up in a rural community, it's as if it has always existed, you know, like especially land seems to be passed from father to son it seems always be going from one generation to the next it's inherited you know um people very rarely become farmers because they chose it on the leaving search you know and yeah. uh, you get the feeling that things have always been that way but and i think joe as well was interested in this period because you see when it was new and and these farmland that maybe he grew up in like it's very clear when it was made which I think is is fascinating that there there was a time that this was a new thing when people came in and built those drains and built those ditches, and uh, yeah, like uh, uh, and me too. I'm interested in that at point that it is new, especially nowadays we're trying to understand the world. It's changing so much that it, now things are just they're new, you know. And uh, it's good to think of that. Yeah, but you were thinking Shane it was almost like the opposite, where he was demonstrating how old the area was is that right i think that that's the, the sense i got of it i guess the more <laughs> the more i think about it since that last conversation we had uh, is is perhaps yes it, maybe it was talking more about he was zoning in more about where we were thinking about it with the, the 18th century um he, so perhaps yes perhaps more he was trying to show us something of that time showing uh, sh- those fields that were created of that mm-hmm. time but i got a sense of him Wanting to show, wanting to show a sense of society that had been around for a long time, mm-hmm. a settled sense of society. That's again, maybe that's just something that was occurring inside my head. But I got that impression that he liked. He was trying to show us that ancient is probably too strong of a word, perhaps, but the longevity of of settlement inside Lyra Brown. Yeah, and that was all contrasted with the road. You know, he's writing this book mm. about the road, and the road was really like a new form, not a new form, but technology that was brought into the area because mm. like yeah back in the day if you wanted to bring the butter to the market you just had to walk across a field whereas now there was like a technology imposed in the area yeah, yeah well yeah even from the very this is not in this interview that that we're going to listen to but when we met him the first time he did talk about that everything was brought into the area with horses and carts mm. but the carts didn't have wheels because yeah the, that was you know, wild just, wasn't it it was. It's amazing that it was just dragged along, just because of the steepness of the trails and things like that. Wheels just wouldn't have worked because they would have, you know, been out of control going either up or down the hill, and so they were dragged along with uh, these poles, mm. and the, they would wear away and they would yeah, get yeah. replaced and everything. But you know, but there, as you say, the, when the road is being made or as the road is being made, there's a real sense of change. I think that's one of the things that we're interested in. Perhaps in the project is we're, we're trying to see that sense of change, a big change happening. We look back and we see this big change, but it's small incremental changes. Mm. But the building of a road or indeed Derby getting access to a thousand acres, they're quite significant changes. Mm. You know, even when dealt in just those one one things, they're quite significant. OK, will we uh, get on to it? Because I think he starts with a history of the whole area, which is which is a fantastic mm. like ancient history is where we start. So will we just get into it?
as you could see, Lerkampan is a very upland, what we call upland area. Yeah. Uh, we're up here off the low ground of um, North Kerry. North Kerry would be a, a, a very low-lying plain. Yeah. Uh, and apart from Cunacanor, uh, uh, most of it would be barely above sea level. Uh, the field that flows through it is a fairly slow river because mm-hmm. it's on the flat there. But then when you begin to move south um, to the southern part of North Kerry, put it that way, uh, you're heading towards Castle Island and uh, the uh, the ground begins to rise and up here in Lairacampan uh, we'd be in a, a bit of altitude, probably about 500 feet above sea level. Uh, a lot of it, there'd be hills and valleys, of course, but it uh, would be... Uh, it would be up in a place where I reckon that the season, compared with, we'll say, Listowel, would start about 10 days later and okay. finish. The summer would finish about 10 days earlier, right. on average. You, you could see the difference. I, I, I used to work in Limerick and I used to drive, so I, I, was, I was observing that as I was driving along different times of the year, you could see the difference because of the altitude here mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, maybe a bit harsher weather in general. It's harsher up here, is mm-hmm. it? It would be harsher in general up here, although I like the weather up here myself in a way. Mm-hmm. You do get higher rainfall, obviously. Mm-hmm. You do. There's no doubt about that. You do, well, because this area is uh, blanket bog, and right. blanket bog would never have, a, have a, um, a, appeared on the horizon, so to speak, if you didn't have a higher rainfall. Okay. It's just the way it... Oh, you were saying that it's about the minerals sort of going down. Yeah, they, I was saying there when we were out the last year that how bog and moorland was formed, that it was, a, mm. for the most part, it was a human intervention. A lot of people don't see it that way. They think bog is natural, and it is, I suppose, in its own way. But the um, what happened was that after the Stone Age, uh, sorry, not the Stone Age, the Ice Age ended, mm. um, the ice withdrew... And the island began to grow trees. Okay. The trees were probably, the seed was probably in the ground, I would imagine, rather than being washed in. And it germinated again. And uh, uh, trees grew all over the island, massive amount of trees. And then people began to come back to the island. Mm. And uh, basically, they discovered when they came back, uh, the short story would be that their implements couldn't cut the big trees that had grown on the good land down. Low. Okay. So they went up into high ground, like in the cage fields above in Mayo and places like this, and they cut down the smaller trees that had grown here because of the high altitude. The trees hadn't grown as well uh, as good and ha- as big. So they cut them down and uh, they exposed the ground to the high rainfall. Uh, at the same time, uh, the f- records do show that there was a, the, the weather uh, disimproved and there was more rain than usual right, and, right. and bad weather. And it was the combination of that, exposing the ground to the elements and the increase in the rainfall uh, that washed out the minerals in the ground down a few inches down and sort to form the pan uh, that stopped water seeping away and uh, caused water logging. And it was in the, those water log conditions that the, the header and the rushes and those rough sort of plants uh, grew and died and grew and died. Mm. And uh, eventually, in some places, would, around here, would be up to six feet deep. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, of bog land. Uh, so, uh, obviously, the people that cut down the trees begin to move down the mountain yeah. and down to the lowlands as as their implements got better and they cleared land in better places. Yeah. And then, I suppose, the, not literally, but... You could say they looked back up the mountain and saw the bog following them down. <laughs> and, and then they discovered that they could burn it. They okay. could burn the turf. So they had heating coming on the, on the mountains up here and uh, they were able to live down in the lower ground where the weather was better. Okay. Now that's a very simplistic sort of a, yeah. of a picture of the thing, but it's pretty accurate, I think. Mm-hmm. That's, that's basically how we wound up with a landscape like we have. Yeah. And is that a, seen as a good thing? Like, so... So the people living in the lowlands, and they're farming, presumably, were they? They say the, again. The people in the lowlands, that was sort of farmland, was it? Around oh, yeah, yeah. So we're talking well, about... Well, well I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be an expert now on that. But uh, obviously, uh, I would think 
that if, if there were hunters, there would mm. be more game down in where the big forests right. really were and the good land was and the, the good grass was and all that. Yeah. And uh, if they were inclined to farm, obviously that would be better down there as well. Mm. So, but in Mayo, where the best example of it is in the cage fields, uh, when they investigated the, below the surface there, they discovered that there was walls built of stone, stone that had oh. been gathered, uh, and uh, that there were fields there. Yeah. And those fields became overgrown. Okay. With bogland, with uh, oh, with, with peat. I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the uh, the same thing would have happened in other places as well. Probably less likely that it would happen this far from the sea here in mm. Lerpampan, but there is some evidence that it, it may have uh, it, that it, they, may, they may have. Something like that may have happened here as well. There is, uh, just a mile from us here, there is um, the remains of, a, of a, a stone ditch that some people think go back to that time. Okay, yeah. really? Uh, also, there definitely was people around here back 3,000 years ago. Yeah. Back, we'd say in the end of the Bronze Age. Uh, the Lyle Compound find which is in the museum in Dublin, it basically it is a, a round stone ring mm. about 10 centimetres in diameter uh, and, and it was found just half a mile from where we are now here in Lair Compound. Okay. And uh, it is estimated to be three to 4,000 years old right. uh, by the museum. And if you go to the National Museum in Dublin, you'll actually be shown it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing then is that was found around here was bog butter. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just a mile from us here in, to the west in Banmore in the 1970s, there was bog butter found there. Okay. And that was recorded and it's in the museum in Dublin as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the notes of the time about it were taken were, are still available there where it was found and who found it and all that. Yeah. And actually, I, know, I, I used to know the guy that found it. Did you? He's dead now, but okay. he, he, he was—he was old when I—I I was. I used to cut turf beside him. Oh yeah, our old bank of turf okay. was next to his. So he found that, um, and it was taken to the museum. Uh, just across the way there, there is um, where Bordenamone used to cut turf. Mm-hmm. There was bog butter found there as well in the forties. Okay, and that was sent over to Holland to be carbon dated. Yeah, and that. Uh, Shows as well that was can't remember the exact dates now, but it was three or four thousand years old. Okay. Yeah. Why, so why, there's yeah. obviously a lot going on. Like if you have three or four discoveries like that. Yeah, you know. you, yeah, you would think that. The mm. only thing I, I think about it is that of all the places around in Ireland or any well around K- North Kerry that has been excavated most, it's Lyra Compound because the turf has been cut here. A lot yeah. of turf has been cleared and. You have a lot of bog holes, as we call them, that have gone down to the original surface. Okay. And not much has been found. Right. That's the thing. Now, that may be because people didn't know what they were looking at Mm. when they got down to that level. Yeah. And things may have been lost or not noticed. So that's one of the things. In more recent times, uh, machines have been used to cut turf. And yeah. they are totally dis- discriminatory. I mean, they they, yeah. you, they they just grab everything, and you could lose very important things. Is not that what happened to the bog bodies? Hmm? Is not what happened to the bog bodies? Was one of them cut the, in half by a machine? I would. I, I don't know that, but I would believe it. It's possible yeah. that would have been up the midlands. I would say. Yeah. 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 So you you'd have that uh, problem, all right? So yeah. we're doing this project in the 1700s, right? Well, there have mm-hmm. been continuous people like whether well, people have been living here continuously between like I know I can't say for sure but between say 3,000 years ago and the 1700s yeah one of the problems that we have I think is that it's it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to know one of the unfortunate things or fortunate things depending on which way you look at it mm-hmm. was that the down survey wasn't wasn't didn't wasn't used here uh, this, this place wasn't surveyed in the Down survey in the 1600s oh. because the Earl of Lixna, the yeah. Earl of Kerry, the guy in Lixna, he was on the right side of history that time in terms of holding on to his domain. Okay. So 
uh, it was the areas and the chieftains that were removed right. by the, the English at that stage. Their areas was, were, were surveyed and the, the land was um, parcelled up and given out to the soldiers or the, that, that had fought for no pay for, mm. for the, the English. Uh, they were compensated that way and right. other, others as well. And it was they came in and the plantations of Munster and all that took place. Mm. Uh, so you had, that's the, that was one of the things that happened. That meant that if that had happened here, we'd have a better record yeah. of what the place was like back that time. Yeah. But we don't. Okay. So when you look at the, the, the map of the Down Survey, there's a big blank area around right. this area because it wasn't surveyed. Unfortunately, because those of its Morrises were holding on to it, was they, it? They were holding on to it. Right. They didn't lose their land, so that that was the thing, and that was interesting. I think that uh, that that uh, that that happened, but unfortunately, it, it leaves a hole in the record. Yeah. Uh, the after that, then you can imagine, I suppose that uh, because for the upland, the population would have been small, if any. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way in, given the lack of roads. In yeah. um, would have been along by the rivers, we reckon. Okay. Uh, because along by rivers, you tend to get hard ground and uh, uh, where you can walk or have a pack horse or whatever to get into a place. Yeah, I suppose it's just easier to conceptualise as well. Like, you know, a river is almost like a road, really, isn't it? Well, it is in that, fa- in that fashion. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it's a thing that, well, obviously, you can follow it. Mm. And it's the direction finder yeah. in, in its own way. So where does the river lead? Like, where was the nearest? The nearest oh. river, there was a couple of them coming in here that okay. obviously people, I think, followed. Uh, the river Smirle mm. uh, flows from beyond the compound there between here and Castle Island. Mm. Uh, and it flows north, for the most part, into the field. Okay. Just east of the stole. Yeah. Uh, so... Obviously, east of the stall would have been reasonably populated at that time. Mm-hmm. And if people were adventurous or wanted more land or wanted to get out of the limelight for some reason, yeah, I would imagine they would be heading up along the Smirle. Okay. And they'd be working their way. And uh, the other thing that would entice people along the river mm-hmm. would have been the fact that the river overflowing numerous times over the centuries caused a thing called inches. Okay. That, that's areas of flatland beside the river mm. that the flood had carried soil over in floods, flood it, times, yeah. deposited it there, and it had built up um, maybe a foot of good soil, yeah. good ground uh, that people could use. Mm. Uh, they weren't very big areas, but they were f- pretty fertile, and uh, they didn't require a whole pile of work to actually make them work yeah. in terms of, of uh, producing stuff. So and that would have been an attraction too to find those along the river, and you'd be, I would imagine that you would be inclined to follow that to see if you could find more of those. And one of the biggest ones is actually in Lairacampan, which would be ten miles up from the Smirle. Okay. And that was we were over the other day, and uh, we were standing it's where the the, uh, oh, the, GAA the community centre on the yeah. GAA, well, it's not a GAA pitch officially, oh, right. but a, a football pitch. Uh, that's where that is. That's uh, about you know, a good few acres there, and that okay. was one of the inches. Uh, that was good land. After that, then any land up here that was to be turned into good land had to be enclosed and worked on. So there was if, no natural meadow land up here. So if you were following the river, you might find you'd find that. a bit of good land. You'd and find you definitely would find it all the way along. And would it's, you have to be given that land, or that's that's I I wouldn't know that for sure. Mm. Um, I, I mean, officially the Earl. Of Kerry owned all from Lixna and east and west of it, yeah. but also up along the Smirle, south of it, heading south towards Castle Island, up to a place called the Lashoreg River, okay. which is the boundary between Corricannon and Renegon, mm-hmm. or between the parish of Dewa and Lixna and the parish of Bellamichirigat. Okay. Bellamichirigat parish was owned by a different landlord. Right. right. So, there you had, there you, there you had the boundary. That's about what three miles, four miles from here. Okay. Yeah. Later, yeah. we're in the next town, and it's called a cannon. And then yeah. the next place after that is the Dasharag River, which is the boundary. Yeah. 
So there was a lot of land up here, probably f- several thousand acres, that was at the moorland, mm. wasn't divided into farms yeah, uh, in any proper way. So whether the Earl was getting uh, rent off a small little places up along the river, I, I, it's hard to say. I, there's no record that he was, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. it might have just been... The, not the, worth his time. It t- wouldn't be worth his time, and he mightn't even have known about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah because of the, obviously that time, uh, I mean, even later times, uh, tenants that were evicted or that were pushed out in some fashion or just over overpopulated the, the land they were in used to go into areas that, like bog land, and yeah. build houses or sh- shacks there. Okay. And they'd be left there because th- that land wasn't of any use and there was no chance of getting rent off them anywhere, like, you know. So they, uh, mm. so you would almost imagine, by the principle of the thing, that they'd run the people off the land altogether. But, like, he was happy for people to live on the bog land that he couldn't use. Or the, that was the case. Now, really? at times, well, after the famine, mm. they actually did clear them off the land. Really? They did. They, they, a lot of the landlords... Uh, paid for to move them to America or Australia. Ah. They actually paid their fare to get them out. Okay. Or, or, or others, they just evicted and let people find their own way. Other agencies yeah. tried to help them to, to, to immigrate, but there was mm. massive immigration in the 1850s. Yeah. And a lot of it was people who were living in what I suppose were really rural slums mm. uh, at the time in desperate conditions. Yeah. Desperate conditions. And... Uh, of course, the landlord, there was land, a bit of land tied up and uh, they were a draw on him because uh, the workhouses that they would have maybe been fed from, some yeah. of them, they had to be funded and the landlord would be funding, part funding some of that. Okay. So there was all sorts of reasons why the landlord wanted to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's how they went. But that was in more later times, that would be in the 1800s, in 1700s. I don't think there's any records to show um, uh, about places that are the out-of-the-way places and how how, mm. how people might have lived in them. Okay, uh, there are plenty of records for the big farms that that he had well established the boundaries of down in North Kerry. Yeah, there the Julian papers, his his agents, correspondence that he had with him when he was in Paris and England. Uh, they're, they've still survived and they were, they're in Paris in a mm. library there and they're available. There's a massive amount of them there, but yeah. luckily they survived. And uh, and one of them, for instance, does show that uh, he had what I call an indenture with a guy called Darby Carty okay. uh, for uh, Lyra Compaon mm. and Corrie Cannon. Mm-hmm. Corrie Cannon was 700 acres, Lyra Compaon was... 400 acres plus. Yeah. And uh, he reached an agreement with Darby Carty and two others for their lifetimes. Right. Um, for to take over those two farms. They were, they were basically townlands, but yeah. in, in reality up here, townlands were full farms. Okay. Like, uh, afterwards, then they were divided. It depends on Darby Carty, for instance. He would have come up here. He, he would have had a house here probably... But the main thing he would have done for sure was that he would have let parts of the uh, the farm, parts of Lyra Compound, to other tenants. Right. And they'd be paying him rent, and he'd be then paying the Earl of Kerry rent. But he'd have the extra little bit in the middle. Yeah. So he'd be able to, he, he was making, he was sort of a middleman. So before that, was it, were there, were the farmers paying rent directly to the Fitzmaurice? No, uh, no. no. I, I would think that... Uh, Darby Carty, there might have been some up here that might have been yeah. maybe not paying rent at all, but they certainly were roped in when Darby Carty got so he official, came in and official put the tenant down, of the land. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then others would have been enticed in as well. Yeah. yeah. Come in after him. Come, so. come in after him because he would have, he could have, for instance, Darby Carty, uh, he could have built small houses mm. and other people come in. There are all sorts of ways of trying to. Uh, uh, get the most they could in terms of money from the, the the land, and it wasn't always in just growing things. It was in actually letting 
the land to others because the only way that people had of living that time was to have a bit of land. Yeah. it was called. Uh, the, the land was sort of marginal, a lot of it. It was uh, good enough to grow potatoes mm. and they were able to grow enough potatoes in that bit of land. I don't know the exact dimensions of it now, but there was, there was so many spades long, the length of a spade, and so many spades wide. Okay. And that sort of guaranteed, if you grew the, that much potatoes, you would have enough, hopefully, for the for the full year. And then... And then you'd pay rent as well, obviously, out of that, by selling some of that or selling turf or whatever. Okay. Yeah. And were those... Um, so you had the... There's so many layers, but you had the, the landlord, like... Mm-hmm. Fitzmaurice. Then you had the tenant, which yeah. was Darby Carthy. Darby Carthy, and then, then you had a subtenant. You had subtenants, yeah. and then you had labourers. You had labourers then that were uh, that were landless, I suppose you'd say. Yeah. Because obviously there were big families in among the subtenants, and yeah, they had to try to make a living some other way than off the land. We were talking to John Knightley. You know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he said there's something like eighty percent of the population. Well, labourers. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know that figure now for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah. And we we're trying to figure out. We we're trying to even like imagine what it would look like because the image we're always given is like the farmer has like a stone cottage mm-hmm. on his land, but that was the farmer. Where did the labourers hang out? Well, I would say that a lot of the labourers would have been the sons or the daughters maybe, but the sons for okay. sure, and would have been in that same house. Mm-hmm. Uh, others might have had very rudimentary outhouses or whatever. Right. It was tough, it was definitely tough times, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have uh, to then try to, um, to get some sort of income working for it would just bigger be- farmers or... A wage, really, would it? Hmm? It would just be a small wage, would it? It would be very small. Yeah. Very small. One of the things that they probably would have been doing around a place like this would be draining the land. Okay. Because the, the land outside of the inches would have had to be drained uh, to mm. actually be turned into anything uh, approaching a meadow that would produce hay or grass. Was that uh, tough? Was it tough work? They had to dig the, the, the drains, a lot of them, mm-hmm. and then they had to cart the stone. Mm-hmm. The stone would have been put in in a V-shape, like a pyramid, okay. uh, in, uh, so as that the, the, two, the, the stones at the top um, lent against each other and held their position and didn't collapse. Yeah. And then they'd fill in around that, and uh, basically you'd wind up with a drain that looked like a, a triangle, if you saw it, a profile of it. Oh, I've seen, yeah, uh, yeah I yeah. know the idea. Yeah, and I, one story that I always tell about that, and it should be a, a way more recent one, that uh, my mother's brothers, three of them went to Australia in the 20s, 1920s. Mm. When I went to Australia in the 60s, I met one of them. Yeah. And he'd never come home, and he told me that before he went, he spent the year digging drains in Sheehy's field. Right, mm. and he he never wanted to see the place again after that. Right, and when I came home, mm. by pure chance, they were digging a road at the bottom of that field. Yeah, and as the machine excavated the road, it exposed the drains that he had made. Oh, really? And they were still working. Right. The water was still flowing through them out onto the place where they were making the road. Uh, so it just shows you that those drains were there was they had a, an act for how they made them, yeah. but they were awful vital to the whole thing because if they if they didn't have that knack and if they couldn't keep the drains going open mm-hmm. and they couldn't be opening them every now and then to try to fix them, yeah, uh, that was a big part of how the land was turned into some sort of agricultural land up here. The other way that they did it was, of course. Uh, the additional lime because bog land by its nature would be very acid. Yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't be great for growing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, they used to bring uh, lime in and they, they, they built kilns which yeah. are still in existence. Uh, is, does lime come from? Lime, lime comes from places like Lixnar. Does it? Yeah, oh, right. from the lowland. I don't even know what lime is. If I'm, I know what it looks yeah. like. Li- li- lime is just a rock. I was okay. thinking particular time. Lime was formed under the sea 
Right. Um, over millions of years, basically. Yeah. And it's made up of the bodies of all the fish and organisms of every sort mm. that ever lived in the sea that died and fell to the bottom. And it's if you actually get a bit of limestone and you break it, it'll smell of fish. Really? You'll actually get the smell of fish from it, really? believe it or not. No, it is very hard. It's brilliant uh, rock. It's, it's the preferred rock for a lot of things because it can be shaped and it's used to build some of the best buildings back yeah. over the last 200 years. Uh, it can be squared up lovely and uh, it can be used. But they used to bring it in as well in carts into places like Lyra Compound okay. and they would burn the lime in what they call kilns. Yeah. The kiln was basically uh, a, a hole that was uh, about six feet deep. Yeah. It was faced by... Um, uh, it was built into the side of a, a bank and the front of it was stone mm. uh, and um, there was a hole at the bottom through the stone went into the hole that that went into the big hole inside yeah they didn't put wood and timber into the hole for about a foot deep mm. then they put in the lime stone rocks which they would have broken up to maybe two inch um, stone yeah they put that in then they put in maybe a foot of that then they put in another foot of timber and turf, maybe coal if they had it. Mm. And then they'd build layers like that. And then they'd light it in through the hole at the bottom. Yeah. At the front. And that would act like a chimney. And it would build a massive temperature inside in the kiln. Yeah. That would break down the limestone into dust. Okay. And they'd then pull that out through the hole at the bottom of the... Right. They're killing. And it would be alkaline. And that would be alkaline. Okay. And they'd spread that over the land uh, and that would um, improve the land. The other thing that I would do would be they'd go to places like Ballybunion for sand. Just beach sand? Beach sand. Okay. And they'd bring that now. Ballybunion is 20-odd miles from here. Yeah. But people were doing that. And uh, they'd bring the sand and they'd spread it around. They had the theory that the sand would break up the soil to the grains would start to break it up. Yeah. But I, I think that that might have been maybe not true, uh, that uh, because actually sand can actually block the pores of, yeah. of, 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 of soil. Mm. But probably what the advantage was that the sand was alkaline as well. Yes. And that was probably what they were getting the benefit of rather than the actual making it more porous. Yeah, I, I, that's just a theory of my own. But um, so that's the way that uh, that that's the way the land was improved around here. And with these sort of things, like we read about the, I think there was a Dublin Society and the Cork Society. Mm-hmm. There were like concerted efforts at land development. That's but, right. Yeah, uh, like ideas of introducing lime or the sand. Mm-hmm. Were they just known? Were they just folk knowledge or, or well, people's knowledge? It's hard to know what came first, the chicken or the egg, yeah. in a sense. There was a bit of both, I would say. Um, I know that the progressive landlords, mm. what you call progressive landlords, like the Earl of uh, Kinmare, mm. who, who lived in uh, in uh, Killarney House in Killarney Town. He had yeah. to do with Kinmare, actually. Okay. The Kinmare there was a Kinmare in Limerick that he ah. owned land down that side, and there was a Kinmare castle down there. But he owned massive amount of land, Hmm. And he was big into, back in the 1700s, in the early 1700s, he was big into to lime. And really? he had quarries going and he had a, a whole arrangement with his tenants about giving them lime and it was their job to spread it and all that. Really? So I went back that far. But I would think that maybe there were some societies set up then, hmm. to, like you're saying, uh, to, to try to uh, develop the idea and to educate farmers and educate people about what was the best methods to use in yeah. in, in building, in uh, making their farmers, the, the land better. And I'd say that uh, those societies did, did did very good work. I've seen some of the stuff that they've produced. I can't remember off the top of my head now yeah. the actual dates for those. Mm. But whatever date they were, they certainly did help yeah. because they did give, a, they, 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 they pulled together a lot of, uh, knowledge that had been gleamed about how to deal with bad land and stuff, and they let people know how that could be could be used to their benefit. So it was like a top down. It was, yeah. There was okay. that, but I'd say as well they learned from 
the experience that people Aye. had developed uh, as well, just at local level and had figured things out. Because, there, like, for instance, with lime, you could over-lime a thing, which mightn't be good. Yeah. So people over a period figured what the right spread of lime would be and how often it should be used and all that. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of information gained about things like that just by doing, yeah. know, by actually carrying out the tasks. And people had the time that time to ju- and to learn exactly what they were looking at and take it in. I, I was saying there um, just about land and two things about, like, well, three things mm-hmm. about here. Apart from the river and all that and the way the farms were, brought up, were, were worked out, the, one of the things that opened up this was obviously the road that was built from Listowel side up to Castle Island, and that allowed... And that was one of the things, actually, that allowed lime to be transported the, the new to different farms. Okay. Right. Uh, and uh, the Earl of uh, Kerry, in several of docu- the documents that we can see, in, uh, was pointing that out. Okay. When he was letting farms, one of the selling points was this is beside the road, the new road, uh, on which lime can be transported. Mm-hmm. And they had a big understanding that lime was a big thing up here. If you were ever going to make a go of it, you, like you had to have lime down in down in the lowlands. That that was limestone already. You didn't have to put lime yeah. out in the lowlands down on the store at all. But up here, you had to. So they understood that. So the road provided a way of getting lime around the place, and of course, it provided access uh, to the area, better access. And it allowed them, the uh, guy, the, the Earl of Kerry, uh, to set about really letting the farms appear mm. in a, a, an organised fashion. And it made it easier for him to let the farms because people could get around easier. Um, they didn't have to be on horseback over bogs trying to get to their farms or old tracks along the river. So they had the road. And uh, that made a difference. And that road was going both ways, obviously, as well. Like, you know, it, it helped the people. And, uh, so that, that road is going through, right through to where? Right through the middle of uh, uh, Wavelayer Compaign. OK. Um, Stax Mountains. Right. Right. The, the upland. Yeah. And it, it, so that it did open up the place. Um, so was it connecting two areas or was it just opening up? I well, I, it was. I suppose it was a road that went on to Castle Island, and I'm from there. It mm. connected into other roads. I'm doing an old t- thesis on that, and when t- not a thesis, but an account of that road, and I'm in the middle of something yeah. that old. So I'd probably talk to you about that some other time. Yeah, because <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. there, there is an interesting story there, but uh, uh, we'd have to do a bit more on it. Oh, yeah. But for 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 now, the interesting part of it here, definitely in mm. connection with the Earl of Kerry, is that it did help to make his land a way more valuable than up here in this area in the upland way more valuable than it was mm. he was getting very little out of this place before that road came in yeah it's sort of funny to think of a road as a technology do you know what I mean like in my mind a road just naturally develops by people walking on it yeah but really in an area like this yeah where there's no like major centre or no mm. Major population. I guess it wouldn't develop. The people are just, no, li- they're just living here. It wouldn't. And, it, and in a lot of places like this, it was much the same. Uh, the, I, I've read over around Cork, East Cork and Mid East Kerry there. Um, they talk about, you know, the road to Tralee. Mm. But I also know that they actually had to have guides. Oh, really? Yeah, because... They weren't really roads. They were tracks that yeah. wandered around the place, okay. trying to pick up on the best hard ground they could to actually travel. Right. Uh, and uh, they weren't clearly mapped or anything. And some people would have that wouldn't know the area if they came in from the outside would have to have a guide really? to actually travel those what they called old roads, but really old roads. They were just tracks yeah. that were formed, and they weren't very formed very well even because of the. They weren't that used, I would imagine, mm-hmm. you know, that time. People didn't have reasons to travel a lot of the time. No. No real reasons to go into towns 
and so on. They were different at that time than now. So the people living here mm-hmm. before the major, before the road, say, mm-hmm. they still have to make a living, so they were selling things like turf or turf extra crops. Or butter, grow. I would say. So they had cows. Would be the two, they would have, they would, some of them would have a cow maybe, and maybe they'd put them together with a few others and they'd make enough butter to make it worthwhile taking to the market. And then they they leave for the market, would they? They'd have to go to the market then. Okay. Yeah, but I'd say there was very little movement myself. Mm. They were up here, and they were trying to eke out a living as best they can. Yeah. And uh, is it much kind of the culture from Mm. that time? Is it much kind of the culture? Like, was the language the same here? You know the way sometimes in areas, uh, sort of small language might develop. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. yeah, there's no doubt, I suppose, the fact that uh, the Horsleave Lucre area, we'd be on the edge of what they call Horsleave Lucre, which was... Oh, are we? I um, didn't realise. Yeah, we'd yeah. be on the edge of it. Uh, and, of course, because of the nature of the terrain mm. and the quality of the the the, the, uh, the quality of the land, yeah. uh, there weren't big houses and big landlords, for the most part, actually centred in that area. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, they became areas, if people were in trouble and they were on the run, mm. to be into areas like that, they would go. Really? Uh, and uh, because there wasn't that much connection with the outside world, they, they would have preserved or developed a language mm. and they developed a music of their own, for sure. Like, I mean, the Schlieve Lucre music is a specific type of traditional music that you won't find anyplace else. Yeah. It is traditional music, but it has its own angle mm. uh, that you, that's very distinctive. And that, that only happened because uh, there wasn't a big influence of outside into it. Yeah. And obviously the people here weren't going out and coming back with influences either. Okay. So... Uh, whether it was the preservation of an old way or whether it was just a development mm. in isolation, one way or the other, the Schlieve Lucre music. And the old sayings and the way people talk, and even the way people are, you know, the, the sort of gimp of them and the way they would uh, relate to people would be, there'd be little differences always. But that's true with a lot of communities, whether they're in Upland or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. But I suppose in Upland places where there's a bit of isolation, they're a bit more stronger. They're more developed, I'd say, a little mm. bit more distinctive and a bit more developed. Like these days, when people travel the world, you know, you can see that the the old uh, accent goes. Oh, yeah. The old accent is gone. Yeah. But the accents in places like this stay because they did stay over those times because there wasn't uh, that much movement, like, you know. So that's an interesting... But that was the, 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 the road that, that brought a lot of... Uh, possibility of development of land and the enclosure of land and if you look at the map of 1842 which was just before the famine, the Ordnance Survey map of 1842, there was only about 10% of the land up in the Lyle Campana area uh, enclosed and if you look at the land if you look at the the map then of 1898 the next Ordnance Survey map they did the percentage is up to over 25%. Okay. And if you look at the land today, it would be a much more again. Mm. So the, the, there was a development there. Whereas if you look at the map of North Kerry from before the famine, from 1842, practically all the fields that are there today were there then. Okay. The development had been carried out already. The, yeah. the, the land had been enclosed because of the big population down there. And uh, but up here you can see that the land was originally very open moorland and then eventually was enclosed. And so if it wasn't enclosed, was it a bit of a free-for-all? Like, could you...? There were, yeah. Yeah, there was up here one particular place, Tahan, back the road there, where um, there was a sort of a village developed. Now, this would have been in more recent times, like the, the late 1800s, and a, a sort of a village, it wouldn't have been a street now, but there was five or six houses there in a square mile. Mm. And they... They they owned they did, well they didn't own it they were the tenants in common they they held it in common as a um, a place of the landlord okay they all had the same input into it right and they used to enclose fields whenever they could they yeah. cut the turf and they'd go and put sand in or they'd put lime in and 
each of them made their own field. Yeah. And it became a patchwork of fields with no two fields owned by the same person together. Right. And not owned, owned would be the wrong word. They would have been the tenants of the landlord and the landlord would have officially owned them. But um, then in the 1900s, obviously, that all changed and they became the owners. And then I'd say it was the 1960s before they actually got together and they, um, they, they exchanged fields so that they could have more... Uh, it would make a bit more sense in terms of being able to work their own land yeah. in the one spot. So that was uh, that was in more recent years that they managed to do that. But that was the Rundale system, they call that. I don't know much about it, but it was sort of where a village sort of has, a, has land in common yeah. and they work it between them and they are, they, at the same time they all work out the little bits they want themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and develop them. So, yeah, I've heard so, that's almost based on Breton law, all that. That probably would be something like that. I wouldn't be good at that now, but yeah. it, that goes back a long way. That would go back to the Irish way of doing things, I mm. would say, before uh, before Cromwell did the damage and all that, like, you know. But they say the issue mm. is that it's... Oh, sorry, what? I'm just looking out the window there. Yeah. See the pheasant? No. Don't, don't move too fast now. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Just nice outside the window, we have a pheasant. That's a lighter compound pheasant. <laughs> uh, we have uh, about six or seven of them. Oh, yeah? Come up there and we feed them. Now, they're not pals of ours. The very minute we'd move, they'd, they'd disappear. Yeah. But they know about the feeding and they come up there twice a day. Okay. And uh, uh, they had uh, ten chicks. There's, um, n- I'd say about six of them, they have survived. Right, and they come up to their feeding as well. They're now like like hens. They're big, yeah, uh, and uh, they have survived. And uh, it's nice to have them there near us. Yeah, they're great birds, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that will bring us to one other small thing, yeah. which of course was that uh, a lot of this area, even as it was developed, still remained as open moorland and bogland. Ooh. And uh, some of the landlords would have shooting rights on it. Okay and they would have uh, the rights to uh, to shoot pheasant and grouse. Right. And, any, and I suppose some animals too. And some of those rights still actually exist oh, yeah? in the deeds of places here that okay. were never properly corrected. Yeah. And landlords that no longer exist, mm-hmm. but maybe their descendants do I know that they might have the right to come up here and shoot that pheasant. <laughs> 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 yeah. I came across one of them recently. Kay was going there through some folios of local land. Yeah. And down at the bottom was the shooting oh, really? rights. Uh, be, be, belonging to, I think it was Blinner Hassett. Okay, General uh, Hassett. Bl- Bl- no, Blinner Hassett. Blinner, okay. It was a guy from, um, he was a, the landlord of Rainer Gowan of uh, Belly McElligot. Right. And he'd have been in Tralee. Yeah. But some of the land uh, that he owned, uh, no, he no longer owns it. He's, that's all gone. Like that was in the 1900s. The 1900s, that was all sold off, and he, he got his cut out of it, and the farmers took over. For a That was possible. Back in the day, in the 1700s, mm-hmm. the landowner had the shooting rights. Did that out. mean that the farmers and the labourers didn't? No, they hadn't. And, and, okay. and there was a lot of cases and people were evicted because obviously that uh, the tenants and the, yeah. the, the labourers and anybody else, mm. and the fishing rights as well, of course, okay. uh, would, be, would have been included. Uh, that was a cause of conflict. They used to have what they call wood rangers and... Uh, uh, bog rangers and uh, local uh, people that uh, were bailiffs that would work for the landlord to mind yeah. all that. And that, that, which is very hard to mind that sort of stuff from people around here, I can tell you. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, yeah. how would they catch people? Like, it'd be hard enough to catch them now, do you know? Yeah. But if you were, <laughs> there's no roads or no... I know. You're yeah. on horseback. Yeah, they did, they, they, there were cases, though, on record where they, were, where they did catch up with people, but we won't go down that road too much now because a lot of stories about people being caught but, um, uh, and the excuses that they gave when they were caught. Oh, but, yeah. uh, but I'd say for the most part, the landlord couldn't possibly mind all what he considered his game to be. Yeah. And he, he, should, he shouldn't have had the right in the first case. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose one of the only things that you could say about it is that 
if he did, if he hadn't the, if, if he hadn't the right to have that the right to shoot game yeah then I'd say there'd be no game left ever really at least if he came up here in organised shoots mm. or organised fishing trips there were only odd occasions yeah the game was protected the rest of the time it meant that there was game up here mm. he, he was not going to undermine that but I'd say if he had not had the right to do that yeah. I'd say there would have been very little left up here they would have stripped it you they think? would have been stripped it would yeah. have been because people poor people will always have to do what they, can, they have to do yeah. to survive so I'd say that would have been a, the case so there's, there's foreign against in some cases with yeah. landlords <laughs> so you think this threat would, was enough that people avoided would, mm. like you think people avoided poaching because the threat of the landlord was realistic that would be, that would be really? the, 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 that would be the saving grace in terms yeah. of keeping some sort of uh, wildlife mm. uh, secure in the area yeah obviously some obviously some people um for religious, religious reasons and all that, some people, even if they're dying of hunger, they'll, they won't take somebody, but they, they see somebody else's. You know, they were, that's, that's true. the culture and heritage of the places. Like that yeah. the landlord was the boss, and sure, that's the way nature intended it. That's Is that the way, how they thought? That's really? the way that a lot of people would, would think. Okay. And they'd be tipping the cap, the cap to the landlord, you know. Others mm. then would be more rebellious. Yeah. So, you know, you the whole spectrum of, uh, of people, the church wasn't very helpful in terms of encouraging rebellion. They always, for the most part, for the most part, they encouraged subservience to the landlord. That was the way things were. Really? And you... Uh, That's you, funny, because you, you would have thought, like, the church were dispossessed, you know? Mm-hmm. you think they'd be... Well, you're, once again, you're talking about, depending on wh- when you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, obviously the penal laws, a lot of the priests had to leave the place. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, there was a lot of stuff went on like that, but in recent times, in more recent times after that, in the, going into the 1800s, coming up to the famine times, mm. the, um, the clergy came back with a vengeance. Really, and uh, there was an awful lot of clergy. The numbers of people that joined the priest to that time and the nuns was incredible, and uh, the numbers uh, of priests per head of the population like went from. I don't know, from maybe one for every couple of thousand to one for every few hundred okay you know so there was a big turnout and they really laid down the law yeah and even even though that uh, the landlords and the and the authorities would have been protestant Mm. the real power in the country was for in terms of local people were the church the church decided everything but that was later that was sort of the idea from the famine time just before the famine onwards yeah but in the mid 1700s was the impression I get is that they're sort of half lax. Or maybe yeah. Yeah. Like there's a lot of people not marrying, you know, yes. living together. I would marry. agree with that. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the level of involvement with religion back then would have been small, I think. Mm-hmm. If, you go, if you go way back, of course, you're the elders of saints and scholars and all that. Yeah. But once, uh, uh, once the priest was removed, I suppose, to some extent, and I'd say even before that, even yeah. when the Irish were still hanging on a bit there, yeah. uh, the religion had dropped out of being a major thing. Okay. But after the penal, the penal laws didn't put it out of the question for uh, to, to a great extent, mm. uh, and in all that period, in until the priests began to come back in uh, again and uh, began to rule the roost, um, a lot of people, let's say, were pretty pretty lax. I would say it would be much like it is today. Not that many people going to mass. Really, and, and, and not that many people being that serious about religion. We might have gone back to much yeah, like yeah, it yeah. was before. I hadn't thought about that now before, but I think that might be. That's interesting. Would be, uh, yeah. But anyway, to go back to the land for one yeah. minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the just over out the window there, a um, place called Clockbula. Mm-hmm. Just that mountain you can see there. Um, that's a good example of how land was used in this area. If you go back to the time of the uh, uh, Earl of Kerry, the tenant that would have been there, anybody that would have been up there at that time or towards the end of his reign, and there was people up there definitely towards the end of his uh, time, uh, they would have burnt the mountain. 
Yeah. Each year they would to make the grass grow better. They would have had the cows out on it. The and they set fire to they the. They set fire to the mountain literally okay. and they burn it to be controlled. They were very good at that, and they would then um, put the cows out in it. Mm-hmm. They'd probably make butter, or yeah. they'd sell the cows or whatever they did to make an income. Then they sold it in the 1930s to Bournemouth. Yeah. And uh, Gordon Mona took a quarter of a million tons of turf off that mountainside from the 30s to the 60s. And then the forestry came in, Creedley came in, and they planted it. Mm. And all the plantation that they did in the 60s has now grown up into trees and has been cutted off out of the area. Yeah. And then you look up at it again, and there are the turbines up there now. Mm. So that sort of a timeline shows that I think that even in a place like this where you have... Uh, just more land yeah. land that people were nearly ashamed to say they owned mm. often uh, for every square metre of that we say take a square metre of it and the income that was got off that over the years was as good I think as any square metre of uh, value that was got out of the uh, square metre in the Golden Vale mm-hmm. in the good land yeah it it was always possible to find a use, no matter what t- type of land it was, to make a u- find a use that would bring an income from it. Yeah, that's a, that's an, uh, that's a, f- a very clear example over there. That w- mightn't have been the example of everywhere now, but that's a good example of a, uh, an no, upland hillside that has made money every, as long as it's been there nearly. Yeah, in some fashion. Yeah, that's nice. I think yeah. that's a nice place to leave it. It's a nice thought. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But uh, thanks very much for doing thanks. this. Yeah, so I think we've covered as much as we can oh, from yeah. the point of view of the land use. Yeah. And the telephone tells us that we should go. <laughs> I'll let you get to it. Thank you.